Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women working in sports. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and today I'm interviewing Allison Gurrell, the president of Plan A Management, a boutique full service consulting firm located in the Tampa Bay area. Under Plan A Management, Allison serves as executive director of the Jackson in Action 83 Foundation, in addition to managing events and public relations for the Ryan Neese Foundation. Plan A Management currently manages marketing, public relations, and events for a variety of nonprofit and for-profit clients. So welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. I'm really excited to talk to you because um, we have a couple of things in common, but also you, um, you do something very different than what I do. So I love learning about what um, people do in their roles. Um, and I think you'll be a, a great interview for people to listen to if they're not quite sure what they want to do in sports, but they know they want to do something. Right. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So can, let's just start with how did you fall in love with sports? Um, that's a good question, actually. So growing up, I have one sister and uh, I think I was always kind of the daddy's girl in the sense that growing up, I was the one that played sports, none of them particularly well, but, <laughs> um, you know, I was the one that kind of played sports, watched a lot of sports with my dad. Um, I remember when I was younger, my mom was a big boxing fan and we would watch boxing matches together. And I don't know, I was just from a young age, I loved watching sports and, you know, attempting to play some sports. Um, I was never a super, super girly girl. Um, so I think it just kind of came out of that, I guess, just, you know, loving being a spectator and and keeping up with what was going on in the world of sports and just kind of being fascinated with the whole idea of, you know, these athletes that everybody looks up to and puts so much you know, emphasis on their lives and what they're doing and how they do it. And, you know, these amazing feats of strength and athletic ability. And I don't know, it's just always something I was, I liked and was interested in. And so as I got older, um, I actually got my undergraduate degree um, in colleges in sociology. And my senior year of college, I did an internship at uh, a minimum security all-male correctional facility, thinking that I wanted to work in criminal justice. And so here I was, like, first semester of my senior year of college, working in a prison, and decided, I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like, oops, what do we do now? Um, so graduated with that degree, and I actually worked for a year um, before going to grad school, and I think, you know, my love of sports and then I've always loved communicating, writing, speaking. I've always been a people person, the social butterfly, if you will. So I thought, you know, I would really love to be in some sort of like communications, public relations, something like that. And why not do that in sports? Just mesh the two things that I love the most. Um, so I applied to graduate schools that had mass comm public relations programs. And we're located, and the college was located in a city with professional sports teams. Um, mm, literally just thinking, 
you know, maybe by some sort of shot, there'll be internships or I don't know, some way to get my foot in the door. Um, And that's exactly what happened. It was just like weird kind of freaky stroke of luck thing that when I got to University of South Florida and first weekend of orientation, not knowing anybody, I met somebody who knew the at that time, uh, public relations director for the Buccaneers. So like a week after I moved to Tampa, I was a student intern with the Buck in the public relations department. That is so smart, though, to have looked for schools in cities that had teams. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I that's what I did. So I remember um, I think I applied to a couple schools in the Boston area because there were a couple schools up there that have good mass com programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even remember what other. And then USF, and I thought, hey, it's Florida. It'll be nice. There are several teams, you know, around hockey, football, baseball. You know, yeah. got to be a shot in there somewhere. So, and it works warm, <laughs> and it's warm, and it's warm all the time. And for for people. Ooh. For people listening, excuse me, that was my pen. Um, uh, your accent might be throwing them. You're from Kentucky originally, correct? I am. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. So um, I went to undergraduate school in Kentucky and then moved to Tampa just uh, in time for grad school. So I don't think my accent's going anywhere anytime soon. I'm guessing not if it hasn't <laughs> gone away yet. Um, <laughs> correct. But... I mean, I think it's adorable. So moving on, uh, you're welcome. Um, wait, growing up in Kentucky, who are the pro teams that you liked? None. So when I was growing up, <laughs> cause I grew up in South central Kentucky, um, which is about an hour, hour and a half North of Nashville. But when I was growing up, the Titans were not in Nashville. So the closest pro team to where I was growing up was the Cincinnati Bengals. And that was like three and a half, four hours north. So I remember growing up um, as a little girl, I loved Boomer Esiason. He was like my Mm -hmm. favorite, my favorite player. Uh, So, yeah, we watched. I mean, that's why I say people ask, you know, who's your team? Who's your team? And I'm like, I don't really have a team because there wasn't like a hometown team near where I grew up. So now I think a lot of people in, in this area um, are Titans fans just because they're, they're the closest, but, um, but I think that that's good though. I mean, I don't have one team that I'm super loyal to. Like if they don't win, I go into a deep depression. I just like to see a good game and a good matchup and evenly matched contest and, you know, made the best team win. So. I'm guessing that y'all were um, were big college sports fans, basketball in particular. Yes, yes. Go Cats. Go Cats. Around these parts, you're either Louisville Cardinals or University of Kentucky Wildcats. You cannot be both. So we're a Cats family. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, How? So you started in PR as an intern. Talk about that. What were you doing and um, how did your, you know, education as you were going through your master's program help? So when I started um, with the Bucks, I was 
kind of like a student intern. And this is where I'll have to give a shout out to uh, Jeff Camus, who was the public relations director at the time I was there for giving me my first shot working in sports. <laughs> um, so at that time, they had, uh, like, I think they still do, you know, an official intern program. So they had an official intern. And then myself and another graduate student uh, who was in the program with me at USF, we were both kind of part-time student interns. So we were over at the facility probably two or three days a week during the week, just helping out for a few hours. And then we worked in the press box on game days on Sunday. So mostly we were doing a lot of the kind of grunt work. We went in the locker room with those little handheld recording devices. And (laughs) when the media was in there, because they have, you know, the open locker room times during the week, there's. I can't remember what it is, two or three days a week that for like that hour of lunchtime, uh, media can go in the locker room and just walk up to any players that happen to be in the locker room and ask them questions. So Uh it was our job as the interns to get quotes. So like to record when the players were answering questions from the media. And then we went and sat and transcribed all of that, typed it out. So it was like, three or four hours in the afternoon, just typing out each player's questions and answers. And then the PR department provided all of those quotes um, and the player quotes to all the members of the media. So, and the media loved that because, you know, if, if a particular player was talking one day and they were trying to get questions answered by one particular guy, but they also wanted a quote from another player about something else. And he was talking at the same time. They could get both quotes they needed because the PR department provided all the media with everybody's quotes for the day. Hmm. So we did a lot of that, a lot of recording and transcribing. Um, Mm -hmm. Your fingers got fast on the, on the buttons. Wait, I got to rewind that back one more time. What did he say? Um, and then uh, a lot of proofreading. So, you know, for game day, there's like a big packet of information that all the media and the press box gets, press box gets at their seat, all the like game notes, you know, what happened the last time the Bucks played this team and all these stats and all the players by position, all this information. So we would help like proofread all that, put those packets together. Um, you know, a lot of the kind of grunt work stuff but um it was great experience um and actually my first season as a student intern with the bucks was the year they went to san diego and won the super bowl so it's just incredible to me and it you know it's that must have been amazing it was amazing it was amazing um you know a lot of times when i'm talking you know i've talked to graduate level classes and undergraduate classes, even um, in PR and stuff. And they always ask, you know, how'd you get into sports? And I know that younger people want, want to hear that there's some like magic formula, you know, I did ABC and then I really am one of those. I was just multiple times in the right place at the right time. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, coming to Tampa, having to, meet the person I did that, you know, knew the PR director at the Bucks, that happening to be the Bucks year to win the Super Bowl. It was kind of one of those could not have been scripted any better. But um, 
yeah, so they flew us, you know, all the interns, everybody with the team out to San Diego for the game. And, uh, you know, we got to help out a little bit out there a couple days leading up to the game. We were in the press box at, uh, at the stadium during the Super Bowl and down on the field afterwards. And again, getting quotes from players, helping media get interviews they needed. And um, it was it was an incredible experience. It was super cool. So when you were doing PR, you know, did you think of going into the charitable organizational type of work or community relations type work that you ended up with? No. So again, that just kind of happened. So I worked for two seasons with the Bucks as kind of the student intern while I was working on my master's. And then, um, like I mentioned before, every team has kind of an official intern program. And that is, you know, you apply just like a job interview. You apply, you know, they interview people and then they offer you their the full season internship. And at the time that I was in school, you know, back when I was doing it, none of the interns were paid. I don't think any teams paid their interns back then. So you had to have the means and the opportunity to be able to work for free, essentially. Um, so I did the the student intern thing for a couple of years with the Bucks. And then I was like, okay, if I'm going to, you know, keep on this path uh, with my career, I'm, I need to do the official internship with the team. So I um, sent in applications to several different teams and actually ended up getting the official internship with the New England Patriots. It was myself and another female, actually. Uh, they had two of us. So um, then I, I went up to uh, New England. <clears throat> I got there around Memorial Day weekend because you usually start, you know, beginning of the summer. So you're there through training camp, through the whole, the official season. And then you're kind of done, you know, February-ish time. So I got there uh you know, end of May, beginning of June, and was there through about October. And was this, was this doing PR? Work? This was in PR, or? yes. Yeah, okay. in the PR department. So uh, while I was in New England, I got word that the person at the Bucks who was in the position of community relations media coordinator uh, was leaving that job. You know, it's every intern in the NFL or any sport it's their dream, obviously, to get a full-time job with a team. And they're pretty hard to come by because most people, once they get in those jobs, they don't go anywhere unless they are forced. But, um, you know, you have to kind of jump on it when, when one of those jobs opens up because especially in the NFL, there's 32 teams. So you've only got 32 shots at a position that, you know, a ton of people are probably qualified for and, and trying to get. So um, when I heard that that position was opening up, I applied for it and got that job full time. So I actually left my internship in New England early. It was like October of that year uh, to move back to Tampa and take that job full time. So when I got to back to Tampa, that job was in the community relations department. And so the best way to, to describe it is public relations is they deal with everything that happens on the field. So that's, you know, dealing with the media who wants interviews with the coaches and the players about, you know, their performance or the football side of things. 
community relations is all the off the field stuff. So that's, you know, taking players to visit, um, you know, children's hospitals or nursing homes or, you know, managing initiatives of ownership or, um, you know, coaches, anything that's kind of charitable community working with, you know, different segments of the community, supporting the team's efforts, um, you know, in the nonprofit world or uh, anything like that. So um, it was a little bit different because it was working with with the off the field kind of stuff, but I was still uh, a media coordinator. So I was the one in charge of letting the media know everything that the team and the players and the coaches were doing off the field. So I was the one going through, you know, the media workroom at, at One Buck Place, letting them know, hey, there are guys that are going to the children's home for Halloween or, you know, the the nursing home to sing Christmas carols at Christmas and, you know, trying to, to get the word out about the good things that they were doing um, in the community. So that's how I first got into working with athletes and their charitable initiatives and things like that. That's really interesting. I'm not sure that many um, organizations have that position still. Um, I think a lot of it um, is still with the regular PR department. Yes. I know it's changed um, since I left. There's no longer a community relations media coordinator. Um, Right. So, yeah, I know now it's PR helps with some of that and, you know, community relations has their director, manager, coordinator, but there's not one specifically for the media. Sure. And I think part of that is probably, you know, and I would love to hear you speak to this, about, you know, social media and the ease of um, getting the word out about things and um, using that as a platform to support all those initiatives. Right. Absolutely. And things have become so integrated. Yeah. Between social media um, website, um, all those kinds of things that now it's, it's definitely more of a group effort. When I was there, it definitely felt like, um, community relations media stuff was kept pretty separately from public relations stuff. It was kind of like they had enough to deal with, you know, getting media things that they wanted related to football and coaches and athletes and their interviews and that kind of thing. So we were kind of on our own to try to beg for coverage of, you know, the good things that people were doing in the community. And um, because we all know the deal when it comes, especially to sports and athletes, it's everybody wants to report on. It seems like for the most part, everybody wants to, to report the stories of, you know, the, bad things that have been done or, you know, Oh, what did he say? And she did what? And I think that's news. I think that's news generally, right. Um, the, you get more clicks, you get more views, um, when there's some sensational headline related to some misdeed, right. As opposed to, you know, but I mean, and then you also get some or, you know, those really heartwarming touching stories. Yeah. You know, trying to push those out a lot is can be tough, you know, when there's so much going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now uh, I feel like it's definitely more of a coordinated effort now that I am not working for the team, but I'm still working with guys who played for the Bucks. um, You know, when we have something big going on, 
I involve the community relations people, the social media people, the public relations people. Um, you know, it's kind of a group effort now to to get the word out about what we have going on and, uh, you know, help coordinate any kind of media and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's definitely changed quite a bit over the years, um, you know, as far as social media and, and just kind of the digital age that we live in now. Sure. And when you were um, with the organization, um, at what point did you say, you know what, I want to go out on my own and do this on my own? Um, so interestingly enough, uh, when I was there, um, Ryan Neese, who was a linebacker for the Bucks, he was like the rock star in the community. He did everything. I mean, he was one of those players that I feel like maybe don't exist. Um, he would actually come to us in the community relations department and say, what do you all have going on? Is there somewhere I can go? Does somebody need volunteers? What can I do? Um, cause he was, you, you know, know, so I've met him once in person. Uh-huh. Um, I've, I've spoken with him a few other times. Um, but this doesn't surprise me actually Yeah. Oh, <laughs> after yeah. like having spoken with him and meeting he and his wife and, um, you know, just how excited he is for his own foundation. This is not shocking to me, but I love hearing it. Yes. Yes. He's definitely, um, he's definitely one in one in a million. So he, because he was, you know, a young guy when he came to the team right out of college and didn't have family, didn't have a wife at that point in time. So he was just kind of like, you know, I want to get to know the community and be a productive member, you know, here now that I'm here in Tampa, make friends, meet people. So he did everything. It didn't matter what we had set up, where we were going, what we were doing. He was there. Um, Tuesdays were the players off days. So everything we Mm -hmm. set up was on a Tuesday. Pretty much every Tuesday, he was out there doing something with us. So we got to know each other, got to be, you know, pretty good friends because he was at everything. And um, so it was a couple of years into me, you know, doing that job in community relations that he kind of pulled me aside and was like, hey. I've been thinking about having my own foundation. You know, I've got some charitable initiatives that I'd like to accomplish personally. Like what I do with the team's great, but kind of like to do some of my own things as well. I was like, okay, good for you. And then he said, and I'd like for you to run it. And I was like, <laughs> what? And I was kind of thinking, really? Um, but looking back, it's like, you know, he definitely helped change the, the course of, of my career path and what I'm doing in my life. So I kind of mulled that over. I was like, first of all, I'm honored. That's amazing that you think that I, that I could, could do that. So, you know, he and I talked, how could we make this happen? What could we do? So at that point in time, I actually found an organization that was local in Tampa that, um, acted as a 501c3 umbrella kind of that operated athlete foundations um, as donor advised funds. So the way that works is there's one organization that holds the 501c3 tax exempt status. And then underneath that organization, athletes have their own named foundation, but they don't have to file their own paperwork with the state to be their own charitable entity. So he could operate the Ryan Neese Foundation underneath 
the 501c3 umbrella of this parent organization and then he wouldn't have to you know file his own paperwork have his own board of directors pay a lot of the things and do a lot of the admin type things that and a standalone foundation has to do because they would are shared across a lot of foundations you know under this kind of umbrella if you will okay so we met with the person who was running that organization and we actually started the Ryan Neese Foundation underneath um, underneath the, the umbrella organization as a donor advised fund. So I left the bucks at that point and started working. Um, my main job was, was being executive director of the Ryan Neese Foundation, but I also worked with other athletes that had their funds um, with the organization as well. So we were working with hockey players, NBA players, several other NFL players. And that's where I really um, learned everything about managing athlete foundations. Cause we did everything. There were two of us mm-hmm. and we did everything for probably seven, eight player foundations. So we were writing the grants, creating the programs, you know, ho- holding the fundraisers, getting the PR support, maintaining the website. Um, we did pretty much everything. So that's where I learned, you know, the bulk of what I learned about how to put on a fundraiser, how, you know, the charitable aspect, um, works. I mean, how it works running a nonprofit, all the, you know, legal information that you have to know and all the tax stuff, everything. So, um, I was with that organization, probably five years. Um, and then I went out on my own and started plan a management. Um, and at that point in time, kind of simultaneously, the Ryan Neese foundation had grown big enough that it needed to become a standalone 501 C three. So we did all the applications with the state, everything were granted approval. So when I started plan a management, the Ryan Neese Foundation came with me and I continued to manage um, his foundation under my new company. Um, and then eventually I added the Jackson and Action 83 Foundation, um, which is Vincent Jackson's foundation. And then just recently uh, this year, I have also added working with the Grammatica Family Foundation, um, which are the three Grammatica brothers, Martin, Bill and Santiago uh, and their uh, charitable foundation in Tampa Bay as well. That's so incredible um, to have been able to, you know, learn all of those things. And I'm always amazed at people who can basically just kind of pick up and just figure it out, you know, figure out how to make it all work. Yeah. Um, Which is pretty much what I did. It was kind of trial by fire. <laughs> like, okay, you're executive director of this foundation now. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I definitely figured it out as I went along. There were sure. a lot of people along the way that, you know, knew more than I did. And I learned from them. And probably the the biggest thing that I learned is just as much as you can learn from someone what to do, you can also learn what not to do. Oh, so sure. there was a that's lot a of great line. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of me figuring out, oh, that's a good idea. And that is not. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just kind of figured it out along the way. And can you, um, 
tell everyone listening a little bit about the Ryan Neese Foundation, um, what it is, and um, who it benefits? Sure. So with Ryan's Foundation, it actually took quite a while for us to figure out a specific mission and what we wanted to accomplish. Ryan is one of those guys who has such a sincere and genuine giving heart that he wanted to be everything to everybody in the beginning. <laughs> like these kids need backpacks. Let's get them backpacks. These people need food. Let's get them food. And it was like, okay, we have to, now we need to kind of narrow the focus and figure out, you know, uh, what we want to do, what we want to be. So it took a few years um, before we kind of honed down the mission to creating servant leaders. So, you know, Ryan started at a very young age learning to uh, look out for his neighbor and to give to others and to, you know, worry about other people, essentially. So he wants to pass that on um, to young people now, especially in this day and age, like we were talking about early, earlier in this digital age. Right. Young people are inundated with so many messages and so much stuff. And it's very easy to get wrapped up in yourself. And so he has a program. It's called the Student Service Program that targets high schools, um, high school age students in Hillsborough and Pinellas counties. And it's a leadership and service program. So uh, the program teaches them about principles of leadership and giving, volunteerism. They have monthly meetings where they hear from other leaders in the Tampa community. Uh, they do monthly service projects. So they're out, out there volunteering several hours every month. Um, there's a, a service trip that they go on outside of Tampa Bay where, you know, they're four or five days serving in another community and learning about what the issues are in that community. Um, and it's a two-year program. So we have students through their junior and senior years of high school. Um, so we're really trying to help set the stage for when they grow up and they are the leaders in the community that it's always on their mind, you know, how to impact others, how to, to give to others and to support um, the community and those who are in need. That's such a great idea. I mean, you can very easily say, give backpacks to all kids, right? Which is, a, is great. There are those, you know, charitable organizations where they're focused on giving one thing, right. you know, or, or doing one big thing, which is, again, very important, very powerful. Um, but to basically exponentially increase the number of people doing things and helping by creating young leaders and, and, um, uh, those who, you know, understand the power of service to community right. is, is hugely impactful, I feel like. Yes, it is. And we, because and, one thing working in the nonprofit sector that I've realized, like, I hate it when people try to reinvent the wheel. And that's one thing <laughs> when, you know, and there've been other athletes over the years who've come to me like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about starting a foundation. Can you help me? And when they tell me what they want to do or what they want to support, I'm like, yeah, there's somebody that already does that. So <laughs> instead of you creating your own foundation to do exactly what this other organization, which honestly, 
is way bigger in name than you are and is already doing what you want to do on a really large scale, why don't you just lend your name and your time and your support to assist that organization so they can just do what they do even better instead of now you would be competing with them to do the same thing. Um, Right. And so, you know, that's what's great about uh, the student service program that Ryan has created is we introduce these students to all different nonprofits. So we're not, we're not creating our own service projects that these kids have to, you know, come up with what you want to do. No, we pair them up with, you know, Habitat for Humanity, Metropolitan Ministries, Salvation Army, like all these organizations that already exist and say, this is what all these organizations are doing. These are all the different needs that are being addressed. And we kind of expose them to everything else that's going on and let them learn like, oh, I never knew that that was an issue. And I'm glad I was able to to help with that and learn more about it. Um, so that's what's been really good about about that organization and that program. That's great. Um, you said that you learned, you know, a lot of things, what to do and then some what not to do by watching other people or talking with other people mm-hmm. who have some of your mentors or role models been? Um, I would say well, when I first got started, the, the, um, the people in the Bucks public relations department were amazing. So I learned so much from them. Um, like I said, Jeff Camus was the director at that time. And um, learned a lot about, you know, how to handle things and, and especially the media and those kinds of things. And then um, when we were in San Diego for the Super Bowl that first year, I met, um, I met a guy named John McClain, who at the time was a writer for the Houston Chronicle. And I believe also at that time he was president of the Pro Football Writers of America. He knew everyone. He knew everyone in the NFL. He knew every other NFL writer for any major newspaper in the country. Um, and he, he'd been around a long time and he'd helped a lot of other students working in sports. So he, I wasn't, you know, another one of those students he kind of took under his wing and, and gave me a lot of advice and really helped me along the way. He helped me get my internship in New England because, of course, he knew all the folks up there. So, I learned a lot of great one-liners from him that I still like to pass on to this day, um, especially <laughs> being a woman working in sports. Probably my favorite that I tell every female that I encounter that works or wants to work in sports, and that is the perception of impropriety is just as bad as impropriety itself. Right. So being a yeah. woman in sports, from the first day that you step foot in the facility, the rumors start. It doesn't matter. You know, why, why is she there? What is she wearing? Where'd she go? Who'd you see her talking to? Like, you're already a little bit behind the eight ball. It's just a fact. So, you know, his big thing was if there's even the slightest perception of impropriety, that's just as bad as if you do something inappropriate, you know, blatantly out in front of everybody. So, you know, having not doing anything that could let someone continue that talk about, you know, what you're doing, why you're there, you know, I saw her talking to this person, that person. Um, that one really 
always kind of stuck with me because it's so true. I mean, it's so true. And I I heard it even about other female, female members of the media. You know, we, you, you would hear that talk as well. Everybody had something to say about every female media, media member who was in the locker room, you know, so, and you don't want to be part of that discussion, especially as a woman, you, you want to be very aware of it, that you're not participating in that conversation because that conversation could just as easily be about you in a different right. setting. Um, so it's definitely something to always, to always be aware of. And Have you, um, you know, over the years, and I know, you know, you have oh so much free time, um, <laughs> <laughs> but have you paid attention at all to um, the women in sports media and how they're treated, uh, especially in recent years um, with the advent of Twitter and the various other social media outlets? And the access that um, fans now have to them? Um, a little bit. I mean, I haven't, I don't really follow a lot of them on Twitter and things. Um, are you talking about something in particular? Well, I, I mean, you know, I follow a whole lot of them generally, you know, Julie DeCaro and um, even, you know, some of our, our local. Um, Jenna, um, Jenna Lane, and like some of the things that people say to them um, on Twitter and other social media outlets, um, and just you know, I think back in the day, if you had an issue with it, it with the anybody in the media, you wrote a letter, right. right? And the very act of having to write a letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and you know fill in an address was enough to stop people from sending things. Right. I mean, they still got sent, but it was a natural filter, right? Because who, you know, really has the energy. Right. Um, But now since it's, uh, you just click and you type something crazy and press enter and it's out there. Right. um, it, It seems to me that, I mean, I know Julie DeCaro in particular, I know, and um, some of the other women, um, Sarah Spain and um, some of these other brilliant women that I follow uh, are, you know, they say something that someone doesn't agree with and they get great threats and they um, are called terrible names. And there's this, I don't know disconnect in consciousness you know in terms of like people and how they behave it feels i feel like and um so you know i as a female attorney in the industry don't really get much of that because a lot of my work is in the background right right you never really want to (laughs) know you don't really want your attorney in the forefront right right um but for the women that are in the forefront you know that that's a big you know, thing these days. Right. Yeah. And that's, again, it goes back to, that's the thing with social media. And I feel like it's a lot like that with even the players as well. Oh yeah. Getting that yeah. criticism. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that when it's a female involved, the, the comments and the innuendo and the tone of the comments on social media 
have a tendency to go way far to one direction where, you know, the players will be like, oh, he's terrible. He can't catch a ball. And, you know, but as soon as it's a female, it automatically goes to sexual connotation and, you know, derogatory comments to, you know, her gender, which is similar to the way you were talking about the, you know, impropriety, right? Right. Right. And it's definitely something that you have to that you have to be aware of. And you've got to be a strong personality. You definitely have to have thick skin to be a woman working in in sports because things will be said to you about you. And it's how you react to them that is going to kind of set the tone for who you are as a person and how you're going to handle yourself professionally. Um, I remember distinctly one day I was in the locker room and um, a quite outspoken player who everyone would know hollers across the locker room to the public relations director, like looking at me, hollers all the way across the locker room, something about, Ooh, I like your hiring practices, like making all of these kind of comments. Mm. So I march directly up to him and he saw me coming and I could see he was kind of like, what's about to happen? I marched right up to him. I stuck out my hand and I said, hi, my name's Allison. I'm an intern in the public relations department. And the look on his face, he kind of, it was kind of like, he did not expect that at all. I think he expected me to be this timid, like, oh, and shirk you know. away. Yeah. yeah. And he like demeanor totally changed. He shook my hand and said, nice to meet you. And just turned around and started doing whatever he was looking for something in his locker. So it's, you have to be that person to say, I'm here for a professional reason. I have just as much right to be doing this job as anybody else. And this is how I'm going to treat you. And I expect that in return. And we never had any issues after that. So it's like, once you kind of put out there, I'm not to be messed with, then, you know, you have to earn that respect for sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel fortunate that, and I, I will not discount the fact that my, my position kind of gives me a little more credibility, I guess, but I, I feel fortunate that, um, since I have been with the organization that I'm with, um, you know, it's actually, um, been a relief in terms of, you know, sexism and misogyny as compared to other companies I had been with. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, uh, it's, it's, it was, I'm glad because I, you know, you get a little worried. Um, but also the tone comes from the top a lot of times. And, um, you know, for, for me, you know, I have a great boss and his boss is great. And, um, you know, I've been really fortunate that the, um, uh, the guys on the other side of the house have all been really great and respectful. And, um, uh, and I think they demand the same of those underneath them. Right. And, uh, it's been really great to see that. Um, and, you know, sometimes with players, you notice that, or you, like, well, one, you forget how young they are, some of them, right? right. Like, 
they forget that they're babies. They've just come out of college. Anybody was following your every move the minute you got out of college, what would that have looked like for you? Right. I know for me, not so great. Yes. (laughs) You know, um, but I do think that there is a general uh, awareness in the industry of these issues that is, um, is changing the the landscape a bit, which is, which is good. Right. Um, That is good. You know, I, I have not, heard of similar incidents from anyone um in my organization since i've been there but you know you know i i feel confident that if there was an issue we would know right right um right. i do i hope it's getting better i mean obviously i'm not having worked for a team in a few years now you know working with the team you know on the on the player foundation side of things but not working for the team in a while. I hope that it's getting better. It seems like maybe it is. I know a lot of interns that I have dealt with since I've not been at the team um, have been females. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they've, they've seemed to have learned a lot and enjoyed their time there. And, you know, it was interesting back when I was working on getting that, you know, official full-time team internship. There were people that told me, you know, don't even bother applying with, you know, this team, that team and that team, because they will never hire a female intern. Like it's not going to happen. So don't even waste your time. And I didn't. I didn't even didn't even bother. So. Back then, you know, that might have changed by now. Um, I don't know, but uh, it was just interesting to me that. And even when I was in New England, um, at the time that I was in New England, female staff members were not allowed in the locker room. So I was used to coming from Tampa where I walked up in a locker room just like anybody else, you know, getting quotes from players, talking to players, helping set up interviews, let guys know where they need to be, what to New England where they were like, okay. Time to go for open locker room. And the other female intern and I are the only two sitting in the office like, hey, what can we do while you all are gone? You know, Mm. because it just it wasn't a thing that they. which is interesting because female members of the media. Could go in the locker room, but female staff members could not. Hmm. I never really got that one. Never really got a good explanation about it either. But, (laughs) um, you know, it was what it was. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a couple of other, uh, player foundations that you work with, Mm -hmm. uh, the Grammatica Family Foundation, um, three brothers, Uh um, what do you do for them and what is their foundation all about? So their foundation is about building mortgage-free energy efficient homes for combat wounded veterans. So they raise the money needed to buy a lot, build a home from foundation up um, and give it to uh, just that, a combat wounded veteran. So they've given, I think, five or six homes so far. And, um, you know, it's it's men and women who have, you know, lost limbs in the Middle East. And you know, so all the homes are built to like VA an ADA specifications. So, you know, mm-hmm. things are lower, doors are wide enough for wheelchairs. Um, 
it's really a really 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 uh, needed and and great sure. thing that their foundation does. Um, and so I've just they've been in operation for years now, just doing everything on their own and with a, a board of directors. And so they finally said, you know, we need somebody to kind of quarterback things and help take it to the next level and get us a little little more organized, help raise some additional funds. So I've been on with them for a few months now, um, just kind of helping to to get everything um, organized, go and try to help find some additional resources, raise some more money um, uh, so we can build more houses, things like that. So do you know where their um, impetus to start the foundation for this particular cause comes from? Um, so they were all born in Argentina and from what I understand, um, they grew up, you know, fairly, I guess what we would call poor. um, you know, not a lot of resource, not all the stuff that Americans typically, the typical American has. And when they got here, I think they just had such an appreciation for the opportunities that they were given here that, you know, they kind of attribute that a a lot of that to members of the military who put their lives on the line and work hard every day to provide those freedoms and those opportunities for everybody um, who lives here. So I think that's where kind of their deep appreciation for the military and, and those men and women you know, where that kind of comes from. And um, I think they just saw, they just saw a need. They have a business that kind of works in the, the construction industry. So I think they kind of saw a a need and an opportunity to be able to help um, veterans who weren't getting um, help that they needed through, you know, the, the traditional means and, uh, the government, because there's so many wounded uh, coming back and not enough resources to, to help everyone who who really needs it. So, um, yeah, they just saw saw a need and decided to step in and fill it. Well, in, in this area, in the Tampa area, we have a large military installation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that Martin, while he was playing, um, what, you know, the, I think the organization, to, you know, tries to work a lot with um, McGill Air Force Base yes. and, um, and probably saw um, through that, um, you know, what was going on with some of the veterans. And um, I think that's, I don't know, I always love when people, you know, um, can fill a little niche uh, that is so needed. Right. And then you've got um, the JIA 83 Foundation, which is Vincent Jackson's, mm-hmm. um, and also military-related, correct? Also military-related. So his dad was 22 years career Army, and Vincent grew up moving around like a lot of military kids do. He went, I think, middle, maybe middle school, part of high school in Germany. He lived in Louisiana, um, Colorado. So his dad was deployed some when he was younger, you know, gone for months at a time. So he understands firsthand exactly what military families go through. 
So once, uh, you know, he played years and years in San Diego, never had his foundation. And when he came to Tampa and like you were just saying, saw the huge military population that's in Tampa because of um, McDill Air Force Base and the Coast Guard stations over, you know, on the beaches and things like that, realized how much of a military community it is. I think that's when he felt like, okay, this is. This is the right timing, right spot, uh, you know, for me to start a foundation doing what I feel passionate about. So the Jackson in Action 83 Foundation um, provides support to military children and families. Um, There are a lot of different programs that we run through that foundation that all focus on some level of support for um, military kids, uh, spouses, the family, you know, the whole family, active duty, deployed. You know, we've got uh, a lot of different programs that uh, are just all focused on some level of of support for military, um, mainly focusing on the kids um, or the family unit. You know, I don't think I knew Vincent's background. Um, I have always very much liked him um, and he has always seemed very. um, He's a like a quiet leader. Yeah. Um, and, and you could tell that he has an impact on, uh, younger players and he is all over the community, which is phenomenal. Um, and he does, uh, reading programs. Is that correct? With JIA 83? Yes. We have a reading program, um, that is in Tinker elementary school, which is on McDill. And then a couple other, schools that are close to base. So, um, you know, all those elementary schools that feed into McDill. So yeah, it's just a reading program to encourage reading achievement and, and reaching goals in uh, elementary age kids. And actually, uh, Vincent and his wife, Lindsay have written two children's books. Right. And there's a third book. Um, it's a three book series. So we're kind of working on, um, book number three, right now that should come out probably hopefully next year sometime. But um, yeah, they've authored a couple of children's books. Uh, One's really geared towards military kids because it's about the main character finding out that his dad's going to be deployed. Um, uh, So yeah, that's definitely a unique, uh, a unique aspect to, uh, to Vincent's foundation is, you know, there's not a, there's a few, but not a ton of professional athletes out there who can also say they're a children's book author, but uh, right. he's, he's now one of them. Yeah. I, um, I've seen it, uh, the tours um, of one book place that um, they give when the children reach a certain level yes. um, in the reading program. Right. Uh-huh. And it's always, it's just really sweet to see because you, you can tell that the kids are really, really um, paying attention. And kind of in awe is he'll lead the tour himself, right? Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Yep, he so. does. And they ask the funniest questions. But um, <laughs> yeah, and when you see those tours and kind of the looks on, on the kids' faces and the questions they ask, and that's when you realize, you know, the platform that athletes have, right? Um, you know, to reach to reach kids and to get out a message and, that's why it's it's frustrating for me when you do turn on the news and you see, you know, this guy said this or this person acted this way or they did this thing. Because I'm kind of like, 
do you realize what kind of a platform you could have for good? And, you know, a lot of professional athletes use it. A lot of them take advantage of it and do phenomenal things. And, um, and then there's the ones who don't. And for those ones that don't, I'm like, you could be doing so many other things to have a positive impact, um, especially on young people. But, um, sure. you know, to each their yeah. own, I guess. I mean, I love seeing, you know, when the guys, when they even just get started or, um, you know, you, you can tell that they're starting to get actively involved in a particular cause. It, I don't know. I get very teary very easily when I see <laughs> stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, big bad lawyer that I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I have all the feels yeah. when I see them doing really sweet things. Um, yeah. Another thing that you do help with, um, you do have some for-profit clients, uh-huh. one of them being um, Vincent's restaurant, Cask Social Club. Yes, Cask Social Kitchen. Kitchen, sorry. Yes. Social Club. What is I don't know. Um, I don't know either. Sorry. <laughs> Cask Social Kitchen, uh-huh. uh, which I've been to and it is delicious. Yay. Yeah. Um, what do you do yes. for, for those types of clients? Um, any, any variety of public relations, marketing, social media management, um, events, um, kind of offsite events. Uh, anything like that. So uh, Vincent being the entrepreneur that he is with his hands in a lot of different kinds of businesses. Um, right. Yeah. I've uh, helping with the, with the restaurant too. And it's been fun. It's been fun. I've yeah. learned a lot about uh, what it takes to run a restaurant. I can say, I don't really want to own one of those. Right. <laughs> I would not. It like is a lot. One. It's a lot. It's a lot, but it's, but it's fun. It's, it's fun. And, um, you know, again, it's good to see uh, an athlete again do be able to branch out and do something besides play football. Because you know, there's so many times that guys get wrapped up in that being their only identity and their only existence. So um, sure. I'm fortunate that all three of the guys that I work with have found their, um, you know, their career path outside of outside of football and are all doing really well with it. So. Um, you know, that definitely helps on the foundation side as well, because they stay actively engaged in, you know, in the community and in the business world and, um, you know, kind of keep their names out there and relevant and doing great things. Um, right. Not on the football field anymore, but, you know, in the community and the business world. And, you know, that it definitely, definitely helps when it's, uh, you know, when it comes to the foundations and keeping the keeping their names in the news and letting people know again about all the great things that they're still doing in the community. Sure. Well, the Grammaticas, they've got the construction business, right? Uh-huh. And then um, Ryan Neese is uh, with a venture capital firm. Yes. Uh, he's out in California more now that he's in Tampa because uh, he's married now and they have a baby. Um, yeah. So he's out in California, but yeah, he's uh, he's got uh, like a venture capital firm. I think they focus a lot in the, in the tech industry since he's, you know, right in the, in the great part of the country for all Silicon that. Silicon Valley. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, and then VJAX, um, his, uh, company kind of dabbles in a whole bunch of things, right? A whole they, bunch of things. They invest in, 
I heard rumor Orange Theory. Um, he did have a couple Orange Theories. I think not anymore. Dang it. Um, I could really use a discount. <laughs> well, actually, Ryan Neeson's one as well here lo- locally in Tampa. So. Really? Yeah. The one in Brandon. Uh, Ryan is totally getting a phone call. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Yep. And then Vincent's got, you know, restaurants and uh, real estate development yep. and construction company. So he's a. Uh, Diversified. He's, he is diversified for sure. Which is good. I mean, that's always great. And it, it seems as though um, he has really made Tampa kind of like their home. Yeah. Like this is where they're going to be. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is really great. We, I always love seeing, um, you know, athletes that kind of find their, um, you know, their roots. You know, it might not be where they grew up, right? Just right. like the rest of us. And when they're that connected to a community, um, you know, same with the Grammatica brothers, um, with Martin, um, having played here, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's really cool to see them make their place here. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. it. It yeah. makes, it makes it a fun, uh, team Tampa Bay community, right? Yes, it sure with does. All of our, with all of our teams. Yeah. Which is fun. Um, what do you do when you're not working? Which I know is all the time. <laughs> like, uh, am I ever not working? No, <laughs> I actually have two small children and a husband. Um, so I've got a three-year-old and a six-month-old. So oh my gosh. When I'm not working, um, I'm spending time with them pretty oh much. Oh my, what fun ages. It, it's fun. It's fun. And my daughter is a three-year-old and anyone who knows me, and spends five minutes around her will be like, oh my gosh, she is a tiny you. <laughs> so she um, she's going to be another little little spitfire like myself, which I love. So that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you are there things that you do for yourself or, you know, self-care, if, you know, when you're super stressed or know that you're going to be going into a crazy couple weeks or something like that just to kind of maintain? Yeah. So, I mean, I do work out with a trainer who, after having two kids, now I'm trying to, you know, get strong again and do some strength training. And um, I actually do Muay Thai, Thai boxing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's where I met my husband. Um, It's funny because, you know, growing up, I said I played a couple of sports, none of them particularly well. And it wasn't until my adult years when I moved to Tampa that I found um, Tampa Muay Thai and started doing Thai boxing and actually had some amateur fights and one professional fight in Thailand. Um, Stop it. So, yeah. This is not something I would ever think of. That's crazy. Most people don't. I'm like, don't let the blonde hair fool you. I will kick you in the throat. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. Um, but no, it's a great, it is a great stress reliever because if I'm like, okay, I got a lot going on. I got to clear my head. I just kind of go in the ring and beat the hell out of something for a few minutes. And then I feel like, how did you discover it? Um, so I think I said way back in the beginning, my mom, for some reason was like a boxing boxing fan. Yeah. I think she watched it with her dad when she was little. So, you know, we would always watch boxing, kind of talk about boxing and, um, I grew up 
loving boxing matches and kind of keeping up with what was going on. And um, I was going to a gym, like one of those big box gyms, and I did not enjoy it at all. So I was looking through South Tampa Magazine one day. This was years ago. This was, I don't even know the year, 2005, maybe six. And I saw an ad in South Tampa Magazine for Tampa Muay Thai. And I had to Google it. I'm like, what's Muay Thai? And I found out it's, you know, kicking, punching, kneeing, elbowing. And I was like, oh, that looks like a good way to kind of stay in shape. (laughs) Something fun. It's not going and running on the treadmill in a, you know, packed area. So I went, just went one day to check it out. And a year later, had my first fight. It just kind of came naturally. And I loved it. I mean, I was I was in there six days a week, Monday through Saturday, training every day and just picked it up really quickly, the technique and loved it. They were like, hey, have you ever thought about fighting? And I was like, no, but I would. Wow. So that happened, which talk about women in sports was also when I started it at that gym, I was the only female. with Because hmm. when it, When I started going there, they had just really started, you know, my trainer at the time, he had been training other people, but like on a very, very small scale, like he was just kind of training some of his friends, whatever. Then they decided, okay, let's make this a business. So they hadn't been operating it as a business for too awfully long. But when I first started training with them, I was the only female for the longest time. And again, I think it just kind of comes with the territory. I'm not, I guess I'm just not very easily intimidated at all. Sure. sure. So, um, yeah, for for the longest time, it was just me and a bunch of dudes and then some other girls. And now you go in there now and it's almost as many girls as guys, which has been great to see. So I got to kind of mentor some other girls who came, who came in under me and started fighting and stuff. So um, that's been really cool as well. That's incredible. Um, And you said you did a pro fight in Thailand? Yeah. I mean, it's considered pro if if you're over there. Um, They don't really have a distinction between amateur and pro. It's like, you know. It just is. It just is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I fought in Thailand in 2010, I think. So yeah, that was was quite the experience. And again, it, it always comes back to... And the way over there that females are treated as opposed to males in the boxing mm-hmm. ring. So over there, when you if you're a man and you're entering the ring for a fight, you climb over the top rope. You go all the way over the top rope. You don't step in between the middle. When you are a female, when you get in the ring, you roll under the very bottom rope. What? Yep. And like, okay. it's like, don't even think about Cause you know, you think, oh, I'm going to be the one to go up there and show them, you know? And they're like, listen, you are in a foreign country. <laughs> you, this room is full of men watching these boxing matches. Like, don't try to be the hero and think I'm going to stand up for all women. Like, that's just not how it works. Right. So, um, yeah, there I was. You just r- roll under the bottom rope like a snake slithering through the grass. Oh my gosh. It was definitely that humbling. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's some like the big boxing stadiums over there. There is a sign. I probably still have a picture of it somewhere that says 
no women on the ring. Like there's stadiums over there that still don't let women fight at all. And um, yeah, there's one that if a woman, even if you walked up like, oh, I'm going to take a picture and like set your hand on the ring or something to take a picture, they would stop all the fights, change the canvas on the ring. (gasps) Stop it. Oh, yeah. It's like a big superstitious for like the traditional, traditional, authentic Muay Thai. Yeah. Women are like not supposed to be anywhere near it. They're not supposed to touch the fighter's gear before they put it on. It's yeah. Sounds like some of those really terrible golf courses that don't allow women on Uh (laughs) Augusta. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You will have to find that picture so that I can post it with the show notes. Okay, I'll look. It that, might be in my that Facebook is amazing. Album. Yeah, that I mean, uh-huh. what an incredible experience. Um, yeah. Aside from the Muay Thai, is there, uh, you know, are there other things that you you do just for yourself? I mean, I know that would take a lot of time. I'm guessing. Yeah, I can't imagine that's you know a quick thirty minute class. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, other than that, just kind of your standard. I do enjoy my pedicure on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Um. That's about it. I would love to say that, you know, I journal and I read and that I don't have time for all of that. Yeah. Sadly. So um, do you um, do you have any do you have like a morning or evening routine that you typically follow? Um, Typical morning. If I don't have an early meeting or somewhere that I have to be, um, I get up, get my daughter ready for school send her off. My husband drives her to, to the preschool and I spend a little bit of time in the morning with the baby before he goes down for a nap. And then, Mm -hmm. um, and all that happens by like 9am. So, (laughs) you know, he's down for his, for his nap already by nine and then I'm hit the ground running. So, um, I work from home, which is great. Uh, so yeah, I just lay him down for his nap, walk in the next room and bam, I'm on the computer getting the day started so yeah it's wow. like you have to transition from the mommy mode to the work mode in like the 30 second walk to the next <laughs> room and then you know get get ready to grab it and growl wow um it must be nice though to be able to spend the time with them um you know the baby when you uh, have the opportunity to and aren't running all over the place yes. um it is. I'm you know, very grateful. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. because I, I have so many friends, you know, mommy friends that work in a traditional type setting that, you know, there's always that guilt. It's like if I'm home with my child, then I'm not at work when I need to be. And when I'm working, I'm not at home with my child when I need to be. So there's definitely that balance that you have to get to, you know, so you don't feel like you're. Uh, abandoning either your child or your work life and that, you know, you're balancing the two, the two pretty equally. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough. It's still tough. There's still times that, you know, I feel like I need to be in multiple places at once, but you just kind of have to prioritize. And I'm lucky that I have a fantastic husband who understands when I have to work and he has to, you know, take over and, um, you just got to find that balance. It's tricky. Yeah. But. Well, and I think it's also helpful when, you know, you're more, you know, internally focused about these things and not worried about, I know there's so much like mommy shaming and yes, 
and stuff like that. And as long as you're doing what you think is right for you and your, your family, then I, I think that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It takes a while to get to that. But once you get to that and realize it, then you're like, I no longer care what anybody else. Yeah. I also really don't think that you care much about what other people think sometimes. You would be 1000% correct. (laughs) (laughs) You would be correct there. Yeah. Um, So, uh, you know, before we wrap up here, is there anything that um, you, you know, want to talk about in terms of upcoming events or um, calls to action that you have for any of the listeners? Um, uh, so there's probably too many upcoming events with all of my, all of my clients to, to name them all. But, um, no, I'm, I'm really glad that you are doing this. So thank you to kind of keep the conversation going. I do feel like, you know, in recent years, um, the conversation around women in sports, um, has gotten louder and I like that. Um, and in a positive way, like I think, you know, more people are realizing that females do have a place, um, do have a place in sports. You know, in the last few years, we've now seen, you know, you can turn on Saturdays in the fall and there's um, females commentating the college football game. And, um, you know, you're seeing more and more uh, of that type of thing, female um, uh, referees in the NFL, things like that, which I think is great. People are realizing that, you know, gender shouldn't shouldn't bar you from from those certain types of jobs that have traditionally been held by men so i like it let's keep the conversation going and uh and see where we can go from here we got nowhere to go but up thank you again to allison for the interview i hope you all enjoyed it as much as i did i have got to look into this muay thai boxing thing It sounds interesting and might be useful. Um, Please check out our website at ltpfpod.com, where I will have a picture of that boxing ring she mentioned from Thailand, along with some additional show notes and links to maybe some other articles or to the foundations that were mentioned. As always, please make sure that you are subscribed to Leveling the Playing Field. You can do that by going to whatever app it is that you utilize to listen to your podcasts and clicking subscribe. Also, rating and reviewing is so important, you guys. Um, In order for new people to hear about the podcast in a really organic way, the algorithms love it when people rate and review. So if you wouldn't mind going to your little app and doing that for me, that would be fantastic. I always appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email me at ltpfpod at gmail.com or you can get me on any of the social media outlets, and by any I mean three, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ltpfpod or my personal Twitter is at Bobby Sue B-O-B-B-I-S-U-E. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. I appreciate you very much. I hope you are safe and well, and let's keep uh, everyone in our thoughts that might be hit by Maria this week. Other than that, I will speak with you all next week. 
Bye.